If you're a visitor with us this morning, you're really welcome. We're glad that you're here. And uh, this is a little different Sunday for us, so let me just be straight up front and say that. Um, you see the campfire, I'll explain the campfire to you in a, in a moment, but it comes from a, a film that I went to see a few months ago, many of you are not surprised by that, that there's a film in my talk somewhere, um, and it's called Long Way Back, anyone seen the film Long Way Back? Okay, it's based on a true story, set in the 1940s, that's for all of you, because hardly any of you have seen it, uh, and it's set in, uh, the ni- in the Second World War in a gulag, which is a Soviet concentration camp in the wastelands of Siberia, and there's a group of uh, prisoners of war there that are in that camp, and seven of them decide to escape, and it's an unescapable prison, because not only can you not escape it, so they said, but actually if you do escape the prison, you're right in the middle of Siberia, okay, and you've got to walk miles and before you get out of the waste, the ice wastelands of Siberia. But these seven guys do escape and they walk to freedom. They walk 4,000 miles. The only thing they had when they walked was the direction. They knew that they had to go south. They knew they couldn't go north. That's the Antarctic and stuff. They knew they couldn't go east and west, okay, because that's just still Siberia and Soviet. They had to go south. And as they traveled, Without anything, without any map, without the right equipment, without a guide, no sat-nav, no tom-tom, nothing like that. All they knew is they had to keep following a direction. They had to keep going south. And the amazing thing happened, there was such a story of human resilience and perseverance and adaptability. And I was thinking about this yesterday when I was out with Alison, my wife, and our youngest son, Simeon. And uh, we were out in this forest with this little kind of waterfall. And Simeon wanted to get twigs and sticks and stuff for, for, to, to play in the water. And so I was in the, in the woods being wood, wood-like and manly and uh, taking, you know, <laughs> wood-like, whatever that means, taking trees up and twigs and stuff. And I, I came back and my wife looked at me in a, in a lovingly encouraging way. She said, you're no Bear grills, are you? Now, if you don't know who Bear Grylls is, all right, then you, you won't understand that. But basically, I'm not really an outdoor type person. But as I watched this film, I was very inspired at the power of the human spirit to keep walking through incredible, challenging situations. Now, as they journeyed, two things happened which are really important. Number one, the terrain they walked over changed constantly. They, they endured Siberian ice wastelands only to get to the Mongolia and they had to walk across the Gobi Desert. When they got across the Gobi Desert finally, they faced the Himalayas, which they walked over in order to get into India and freedom. How many of you know that's a long walk, isn't it? So the terrain, the area around them changed all the time. How many of you know our world is constantly changing? 24 months ago, it was a different Britain than it is now. 24 weeks ago, it was a different Middle East than it is right now. Day by day, there are things changing in our world and in our culture And we're aware of all the cuts that are going on right now. We're aware of people losing their jobs. We're aware of the breakdown, I believe, in many parts of social care systems. We're aware of a lot of that and it's constantly changing. But you know, the other thing that happened was that they not only went over different terrain, but every night they gathered around the campfire. And um, you're going to see like a little thing come up here now, just to kind of set you in the mood. For gathering around, <laughs> gathering around the campfire. And the amazing thing was that when they gathered, there were seven guys. One was American, some were Polish, some were other nationalities. They had nothing in common other than who they were and what they were trying to do. And the campfire became three things. It became a place of remembrance. 
where they, where they reminded each other of who they were and what they were trying to do, the big picture. It also became a place of relationship because they ate together and they told stories and they let each other into each other's lives. But it also became a place of review where they would think about the day that they've walked and think about the day they had to walk tomorrow. Thank you, Helen. And so what I want to do this morning and Tuesday and Wednesday night, the vision night, is we're going to camp around the campfire this morning and Tuesday and Wednesday, okay? So you come Tuesday or Wednesday, it's the same program. And we're going to use this as a place of remembrance, a place of relationship and a place of review. But this morning I want to talk about that place of remembrance, to remember who you are. You see, when the world is constantly changing and when you don't have a plan and you don't have a sat-nav and you don't, all you have is a direction, you need to know what do we actually have that never changes. Are you with me? We need to remember who we are in order to know how we are to be and how we are to react. So if you're a visitor this morning, this is like kind of like a a, a talk to the church just to remind ourselves of what the church is all about. And if you are new to us and you're exploring Christianity or whatever, this gives you a window into who we really are or who we want to be. Because we're not always what we want to be, but we're trying, okay? So hopefully that helps. So I want to talk a little bit this morning about... What do we have that never changes? Because you see, churches are really poor at understanding what changes and what doesn't change. See, we tend to think that meeting at 11 o'clock is what never changes. Or meeting in the building, or singing a certain kind of songs, or doing a certain kind of amount of projects, or, or whatever, that that's the stuff that never changes. That is the, un, is the changing stuff, isn't it? That's the changing stuff. As we walk across different terrain, we need to adapt and we need to change. We have to understand what is it that never changes. And there are three things I want to give you this morning. Number one, we are a community who have a direction that never changes. See, these guys walked and they just headed in a certain direction. We have a direction that never changes and our direction is pursuing God. That's our direction. We don't know what the plan is. We don't know what the route is. We don't know what's going to happen along the way. But our direction is pursuing God. And in the book of Exodus, which is way back in the Old Testament, Moses, the leader, leads all these millions of people out of Egypt. And they're grumbling and they're moaning about the plan and about the strategy and about where to go and what to do. And so he has this conversation with God in Exodus 33 verse 13. And he says, Moses said, you've been telling me, God, lead these people. But you've not let me know whom you'll send with me. You've said, I know you by name and you've found favour with me. If you're pleased with me, teach me your ways so that I may know you and continue to find favour with you. And listen to this phrase, there is humour here. Remember, this nation is your people. In other words, you got me into this. They're your people. This is your job. You call me into it. Sort it out is basically what I think he's kind of saying under the text there, okay? The Lord replied, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. Then Moses said to him, if your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. In other words, we're not going anywhere without your presence. Our direction is pursuing the presence of God. Then he says, how will anyone know that you're pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? In other words, he's saying, listen, I don't care what the plan is, what the strategy is, it's got to be about pursuing your presence. Amen? That's our direction. And you know, when you pursue the presence of God, and when you commit your life to follow God, do you know what? You will not know what's happening. Because the Bible says we walk by faith and not by 
sight. And so in the book of Hebrews chapter 11, it talks about loads of people who I think were all pursuers of the presence of God. They all followed God. They all kept on walking in the presence of God. And it says in um, uh, Hebrews 11 verse 6, without faith it's impossible to believe God. Uh, and, then, and then by faith, it says, by faith Noah, listen to this, when warned about things not yet seen, in holy fear built an ark. So he was warned about things not yet seen, and so he built something that was seen and visible. This is confusing, isn't it? So he heard something that nobody else heard, and he built something that nobody else had seen because they hadn't heard about it. Because it was in the invisible. Are you confused yet? And so the next verse says that Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. Imagine that. Someone comes to you and says, God says to you, I want you to go. Your first question is, where? But Abraham's first question is, okay, not even a question. Or when, Lord? When do you want me to go? Didn't even know where he was going. But he set out and he went. Verse 27, Moses, it says, By faith he left Egypt, not fearing the king's anger. He persevered because he saw him who is invisible. It's bizarre, isn't it? He, it sounds crazy. He saw him who is invisible. And you see, a lot of our life is visible, isn't it? And we're so concerned and consumed with the visible. But you need to know that the life of faith is about the invisible, but what's actually more real than the visible. Are you with me? Because in the invisible, we see that's the domain that God lives in and God by his spirit brings things into the visible and we see it. And so we walk not by sight, but we walk by faith. We have a direction. Secondly, we have a purpose, or you might prefer the word mission. Our purpose is to build an Acts 2 type church that enlarges God's kingdom footprint in us, in our locality and in the nation's. And you can change the words of that, and and we have done, and I'm sure we will do, but basically that purpose never changes. That's what the church is about, isn't it? So we have a direction, we're pursuing God. We have a purpose, a mission, but we also have a set of values. And a set of values are the things that we live by, which ultimately define who we really are. Not our vision statements, not our buildings, not our strategies, not our ideas, not our events, not our programs, not our projects, but our values. And when you have values, those values create a culture and an ethos and that's the way you do things. That's what happens because of the values that you have and that you hold. I've been trying to think about how to illustrate this and I've come up with an illustration. When I go to the beach, okay, I take my top off. See, some of you are, are scarred right there and then with that mental image. Nobody tells me to take my top off, okay? Lots of people who I'm with tell me to put it back on again, but that's another illustration. Nobody tells me to take it off. There are no signs to say, take your top off. It's the beach, people take their top off. When I go to a fancy restaurant, I do not take my top off. Why? I'd get arrested. Small children will be scarred for life. <laughs> But it's because there's something about the culture there that says you just don't do that. There are values that give way to a culture, a way of doing things. I don't have to be told in a restaurant, (laughs) don't take your top off. I don't have to be told on the beach, you can take your top off. It just happens because there is culture shaped by values. If you've got a Bible, look at Acts chapter 2. This is our, our passage of scripture, if you like, that we use 
all these times when we gather around the campfire and thought, think about vision, we, we talk about this. Acts chapter 2. You know, the power of the early church. You know, church is a really weird word for people, isn't it? I mean, people think of church as a building, which it's not. You know that, don't you? You all know that. And they think about it as a system and as an organisation, which it's not. Intrinsically, it's not. Uh, but, but when you see a snapshot into the early church, you see what church really is all about. And in Acts 2, 42 to 47, you get a snapshot of what the church should be. And there are two powers at work here that shapes the early church. One is the power of the Holy Spirit poured out at Pentecost. But secondly is the power of values lived out amongst the people. And I personally am passionately committed to both. I think we need the power of the Holy Spirit. But I think without the power of values fleshed out in people's lives, it isn't the church. So I want to read through it and I want to pick out values. Now our five values as we've defined them are authentic. We want to be authentic people. We want to be devoted people. We want to be connected people in relationship. We want to be missional and we want to be sacrificial. So let me read Acts 2 and see if you can pick out those values. They devoted themselves. So we're okay on that one, aren't we? They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. Isn't that phenomenal? Talk about being connected. You know, they had everything in common. They didn't really, but because of Christ, because of Christ's spirit, suddenly there's a commonality. They came around the campfire and they were one. Amazing. Selling their possessions and goods, they gave to anyone as he had need. Not only were they sacrificial, because they sold and they gave stuff, but they were authentic. Because somebody must have said, I'm not fine. I'm in need. Those of you here last Sunday when Laura did such an amazing job at communicating to us and, and the labels, remember that one, and the one fine, how often we as Christians, you know, or as people, you know, say, oh, we're fine and we're not fine. But in the early church, they were authentic because they had needs and they said it and the needs were met because the people were not only authentic, but they were also sacrificial. And you know, it, it really bothers me how, how much we think that when our life is not going well, that's the time to not come to church. That's the time to not come around the community. That's exactly the time when we should. Because life is not going great and we're not doing well and we're not fine. And do you know what? Join the club. Because none of us really in this room have got it all together, have we? Certainly the person at the front with the microphone has not got it all together. And we need to be authentic and sacrificial. And then it goes on to say, Every day they continue to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and they praised God. They enjoyed the favour of all the people. The Lord added their number daily, those who were being saved. They were missional. And so you see, you can read Acts 2, 42 to 47 as a list of activities. We need prayer, we need fellowship, we need breaking the bread. You miss the point totally. Read it with a, with a lens of values. These guys are authentic. They're devoted. They're connected in relationship. They're not just together, they're one. They're missional. They want, they want to change the world. They're sacrificial. So they'll meet together. So they'll pray. So they'll break bread. So they'll give because of their values. What I want to do this morning in the really short time I've got um, is I want to make a few comments about us as a church. Is that all right as your pastor type of thing? I want to make some comments. I think we are growing in our maturity as a community and I'm really grateful to God for that. Let me give you some reasons why I think we are. 
The way that we talked about homosexuality recently at Encounter was a sign to me that we're growing in our maturity, that we could look at a subject like that, which is difficult, very, very difficult. And there was a great sense of compassion and grace and openness and reality. And that shows me that we're growing in our maturity. We're also growing in our development of people, I believe. Over the last 12 months, we've had 12 different preachers on this stage from the church who've not preached before. Some of them younger, some of them older, some of them men, some of them women. Just a great thing. And can I say, I I believe that as a church, we're phenomenal when it comes to lifting up women. I don't know any other church in our region that has women at every area of leadership like we do. Lots of churches like us do not have women as elders or as preachers or as staff or visible things. We have women right the way through and I'm grateful to God that we do. And I think we're growing in our development of people. I also think we're growing in our compassion for the world. On Tuesday and Wednesday, I'm going to share with you at the Vision Night some things that are happening or potentially happening in and through this church, which are responses to what's happening with the cuts and the crises that is around about us in our community. But there are some things that we need to grow in. And is it okay if I share these with you as well? Is that all right? One thing I think we need to grow in, we need to grow in our ability to help new people to really connect with us. If you've ever seen the film Jerry Maguire, she says to him, you had me at hello. Uh, If that was only true when it comes to church... We don't have them at hello. You know, we, as this church, we're good at hello. We're not quite so good at the next bit after that. Actually, when new people come, we say hello and we give them a welcome. But actually, finding relationship and connection and friendship so that we reach out to them and engage with them, we're not that great at that. And when I say we, that's me, okay? We're not that great at that. We can grow in that area. We also need to grow in our ability to share our faith so that other people become Christians. We're not that great at that. Having said that, we've had an awesome week, haven't we? Who was here Tuesday night? Wasn't that phenomenal? Just stories of changed lives and about a dozen people or so just responded there and said they want to give their lives to God, which is phenomenally exciting, isn't it? Brilliant. And then on the Wednesday, I had an email from John Haywood, who's one of our guys that works along with Merlin, who's doing an awesome job with our, our elderly folks in Rendezvous. And he sent us an email to say that a new lady who'd been along had made a commitment to Christ at Rendezvous on Wednesday. Then I heard about another of our ladies who's 90 years of age who recently led someone to Christ, which is phenomenal. Then I heard about Friday that a lad who was here on Tuesday who didn't make a commitment uh, was having a coffee with one of our guys and he made a commitment to Christ as well. So that's brilliant, isn't it? Uh, Written at the start of the week, we need to get better at leading people to Christ. Let's have a week like this week every week. That would be phenomenal. And we know it's not always like that, but we can get better at leading people to Christ. We also need to grow in our ability to live out our values as the pressure increases around us in our world. And I want to just for five minutes, and then we're going to take communion and worship again. I want to for five minutes or so, or so, ten minutes perhaps, just talk a little bit into these values and just ask ourselves, are we living these out? Am I living these out? Are these important to me? Am I living them out or not? Only you can answer it. Are we authentic? Do we drop our masks, stop pretending, and actually tell the truth? Some years ago, I heard a story about um, a woman that got into a lift in America. And as she got into the lift, or the elevator, as she got into this lift, she noticed the guy who was standing there was Robert Redford. Now, a lot of you haven't got a clue I'm on about, but some of the older ladies are nodding. Robert, my wife's nodding. She loves Robert Redford. I'm over it. It's all right. It's all right. I'm with it. 
And she, he's, have you seen him now? He's ropey, mate. He's ropey. And so she gets into this list. Mind you, I'm not much better on that. She gets into this list with Robert Redford. And she looks at him and they press the button and they're going there together. And she says to him, are you the real Robert Redford? And he said, only when I'm, my, when I'm on my own. In other words, I'm only real when I'm on my own. My whole life is about putting up a mask and playing a part. And isn't that sad? And yet in church, it should be the time when we're real. When we're real. When we are authentic. And there's a real modern trend of hijacking authenticity and actually making it very manipulative and says, if you do this, then you're going to be much more effective. And I hate that. But genuine authenticity that comes out of who you are, not just what you're trying to do, is incredibly attractive and incredibly important. And I want to say, let's be authentic. Let's be authentic. Let's be real. We have to be careful with that. We understand that. We have to be appropriate with that. But let's not pretend that everything's fine if it's not. And when our life is struggling, let's not do that whole thing of, well, I can't be around Christians anymore because I'm struggling. Please, let's get over that. Let's grow in that. And let's say, do you know what? I'm struggling. But do you know what? That's okay, isn't it? As we gather around the campfire, we remind ourselves that we are authentic. Secondly, devoted. It says in Acts 2, they devoted themselves. Peter didn't come along and make them devoted. So he doesn't come along on Monday and says, where were you Sunday? Or where were you Tuesday night? He didn't have to do that because they devoted themselves. They took responsibility for their own spiritual life. And so when we're really growing as a body is when we take responsibility for our own spiritual life, isn't it? They devoted themselves. What about connected? Let me just say a few things about this. Connected is more than sitting next to each other. God's goal for the church is not that we are together. God's goal is that we are one. And togetherness is different from oneness. And when you plug into oneness, you plug into a law that is in the universe, the power of unity, the power of oneness. And so in Genesis chapter 11, when they're building the Tower of Babel, which is this tower that they're building to reach up to the heaven so they could be like God. So it's, it's a wicked thing. It's a bad thing. God comes along and he says, listen, and he says in Genesis 11 verse 6, if as one people speaking the same language, they've begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Because they're plugging into the power of oneness. And when you plug into the power of unity and oneness, you plug into something far greater than you could ever imagine. And so I want to say to us this morning, our journey as we walk over different terrain is a journey where we live out this value of being connected, not only in relationship, but in oneness, in unity. And unity does not mean we lose our identity. Because without difference, there'd be no need for unity, would there? See, me and Dan are very different from each other. We need the power of unity because if we were just the same, we wouldn't need it. But because we are so different, we need that power of unity, don't we? It's not about loss of difference. It's about coming together, not just being together, but being one. And the language, the language changes from you and I to us and we. See, it's a change of language. It's covenant language. Marriage covenant language is not you and I, it's us and we. And that's how we talk. And if we're living in unity as a church, what will happen? We will deal with our issues biblically. So when someone hurts you or offends you, you won't gossip to someone else. You will go to them and put it right because that's biblical. And you won't come to a leader and say, do you know what? I've something to talk to you about and lots of people think the same way I do. You won't do that because that's not only immature, it's not biblical. You wouldn't do that. 
Because you'd be living biblically because you want to be in unity together, us and we, oneness. We would be praying for each other relentlessly. I had a, just a great experience on, on, on Monday morning with coming into the office and someone here is, who, who was at the leaders event that we did last Sunday night where I shared some stuff about the building, which I found quite difficult to do. And I'm going to share that with all of you Tuesday and Wednesday night. I was nervous about the meeting. There's a lot of big issues that we've got to face with. But as I came in Monday morning, not only I had some great feedback Sunday night, but Monday morning a guy said, who's new to the church at the leadership meeting, we pray for you all the time, you know. You're doing a great job. It's phenomenal. And the Bible says you should pray for your leaders, doesn't it? You should pray for each other, actually. Because when we pray for each other, and when we encourage each other, we get a better each other, don't we? And so like that picture of the geese, you know, that fly in the V formation, and the ones that are out of front, the ones at the back are honking encouragement. This church needs to honk a little more, don't we? If we could honk a little bit more, what a different world it would be. See, there's a line for you. If we could just honk encouragement to one another. When we see something good, we say, that's good. And we're specific. And we say, that's good. So I think the guys that played this morning, the way you played that guitar, the way you led us, that was great. The way you welcomed at the door, the way you did this, the way you did that, the specific thing you did was great. And I want to honk at you. I want to honk encouragement at you. Missional. Are we missional where we take the glory from where it is to where it isn't? Where we're not just mission projects, but we're missional lives. Not just putting on events, but we're living out mission lives. Sacrificial. Paul said, I've been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. I'm running out of time. As we set off on our journey again, and as chapter 3 rolls out again, many of you know what I'm talking about with that, and as the terrain changes, and oh, we thought we were in ice, and now we're in desert. Thought we're in desert, now we're climbing up a mountain, and that will happen. As we do that, we go knowing that we have a direction that never changes. We're pursuing God. We have a purpose or a mission that never changes. We're going to build an Acts 2 church that enlarges the kingdom footprint. And we have a set of values that never change. This is who we are. And when you know who you are, then you'll know what to do when the world changes. So when the recession comes, we don't all collapse and get into media hysteria. Because we know our God and we know who we've trusted in. And I know for many of you that's tough. You've lost jobs, your jobs are at threat and we are standing with you and praying with you and we will help you together in whatever way. But we are not those who are without hope, are we? Because we know who we are, we will know what to do. And you know, I, I, I've had this really powerful experience recently in that I've been reading this book um, it's a new biography on Dietrich Bonhoeffer, which I know some of you have probably not heard of. He was a German Christian theologian pastor in the 1930s and 40s. And he uh, came into ministry, if you like, and leadership in Germany at the same time that Hitler became chancellor in the early 30s. And as I'm reading this book, I'm reading the, the, the bit in between 30 and 35 at the moment when Hitler came in and, and he took the church and he made it a state-controlled church and he controlled it and manipulated it and put a bishop in and loads of Christian leaders came around that whole thing. And this is how bad it got, okay? They took out the Old Testament because it was too Jewish. They took down the signs of the cross because the sign of the cross, he said, was a sign of weakness. So they replaced it with a sign of the swastika. 
They watered down a lot of the teaching of Paul and they made the pastors sign up to this. And Bonhoeffer and many others who formed what was called the Confessing Church stood up and said, no way, we know who we are, we know our values and it cost him his life. Towards the end of the Second World War, I heard this story of a church that was singing hymns one Sunday morning while they were taking Jews in, outside in, in trucks and they were screaming and they were herding them out into the camps to, to die. And the guys who were singing hymns turned the music up so they couldn't hear the singing. A friend of mine was a, a pastor, who, who, a leader who was in Ghana, West Africa, went to a building on his day off from, from preaching and on the coast, and they took him there, and it was where hundreds of years ago they kept thousands of men and thousands of women in chains for three, four weeks. Many of them would die there, living in their own waste. And they'd live there, and then after three or four weeks, they'd take them on ships and send them to slavery. He came out totally shocked, gobsmacked by that story, by what happened. And as he came out, he said, what's that really nice white building right above it? And he says, that's the church where the slave owners built and where they would put their Sunday best on. They would go and sing songs of faith to God while underneath these guys were in chains. And then I think, and I think, how could the church in Germany be like that? How could the church in Ghana be like that? How could the church in South Africa be like it was in apartheid? How could the church in England be like it was in the Crusades and the Inquisition and all the other kind of stuff? And it's very easy to look at history and to look at another culture. Here's my thought. In 20, 30, 40, 50 years time, what would it be like if somebody said, do you know what, in 2011 in the UK, you'll never guess what the church were doing. You'll never guess how they were living. See, when you're in it, you can't see it, can you? And I wonder if we're in stuff that we just can't see, that in the future they'll look back and say, how on earth could they be like that? Do you know, people left the church because the music was too loud. And they'll look at it and they'll think, how could that happen? That they left and they went to another church because the preaching was better. And they wouldn't give anything to the work of the church because they were so consumed with how many flat screen TVs they could have and how many foreign holidays. And I wonder if in the future they'll look back at us and me and my life and say, how could you live for Christ like that? It's challenging, isn't it? And only when we take a look and when we say, do you know what, God, I want to live for you. You know, our culture lives by three gods, consumerism, individualism, and a culture of entitlement. Those are the three gods. And we need to be different to that, don't we? Because we don't live by those values. We live by a different set of values. You know, I've said this many times, the difference between a cat and a dog, a dog says, you feed me, you stroke me, you must be God. Cat says, you feed me, you stroke me, I must be God. And so much of our living is me in the center and God says, you will have no other gods before me, he said, not before you. But we live with us in the center. So we are going to gather around the table this morning and I want to ruin your theology this morning. Is that all right? <laughs> you see, when in Luke twenty-two nineteen, Jesus said, um, you know, he broke the bread and he gave the wine and he said, do this in remembrance of me. Anyone heard that phrase before? What's the this he's talking about? Do this in remembrance of me. So perhaps it was that as he broke the bread like that, he was saying, do this in remembrance of me, which is what I was brought up to believe. 
Or perhaps when he was pouring the wine out, he said, do this in remembrance of me. Is that what he's saying? Or is he saying something much deeper than that? You see, if he's just saying, do this in remembrance of me, then he's saying, every time you meet together, do that religious thing with those symbols. Do that in remembrance of me. I don't think he's saying that. You see, a sacrament is a visible sign of an invisible reality, isn't it? And so when he says, do this in remembrance of me, he says, this is my body broken for you. Broken for you. This is my blood poured out for you. This is selfless, sacrificial, pouring out of my one and only life for you. And when you gather together to remember, do this. Live like this. Live broken. Live poured out. Live sacrificial. Live selfless. Live for other people, not just for yourself. Because when you do that, then you live like me. And I know that's true because in John 13 verse 35, when he washed their feet, he said this, as I've done to you, you do to others. What does he mean? Every time you come together, come with your bowl and your towel and wash. No, that's a sacrament. It's a visible sign of an invisible reality. He says, I am, the ser- I am a servant, even though I was the king. I'm the creator God, yet I'm not too big to stoop down and wash your feet. As I have lived for you, so you live for others. Isn't that phenomenal? So when we come and we take bread and we take really weak juice (laughs) this morning, (laughs) we've got to have some Merlot, haven't we? We've got to have something one of these days. See, notes back there, dangerous, dangerous. When we come, when we come, pull it back, and we break bread and we drink wine and we do this in Romans, it's not about the act visible sign of an invisible reality. That's not the sacrament. You are. I am. So when we do this, it reminds us, it's a visible thing. It reminds us that we are meant to be the visible sign of an invisible reality. We're meant to be the ones broken. We're meant to be the ones poured out. We're meant to be the ones giving so that we live like Christ. We're Christ's hands and feet, aren't we? And when we do that, and when we live like that, our crazy, complicated, mixed up world sees visibly God. Isn't that amazing? So what we're going to do this morning, aren't you excited that we have a purpose? Aren't you excited that we have a direction we're pursuing God? We have a set of values to live out. And as our society increases in the pressure, I believe, I believe we're in tumultuous days. I'm not all doom and gloom. I think there's some great things happening. We live in tumultuous days. And we need to know who we are in order to know what to do. And so this morning, I'm going to ask the guys, and Kirsty's going to come and sing over you this morning, a great old hymn that was used in the Welsh Revival, start of last century. And as she sings this hymn out over you, I'm going to invite you all to come out this morning, so if the, the leaders could come and get to your stations, please, that would be great. And I just want to invite you to come and to take communion together. But, but, when, but when you break the bread and when you drink the wine, don't think about those things, think about your life and ask yourself, God, am I living like this? Am I a visible sign of an invisible reality? Am I a sacrament? Am I broken? Am I poured out? Am I giving out? Am I living this authentic, devoted, connected, missional, sacrificial life? And say, because Lord, I want to. And I know, and I know that I'm not in lots of areas that, but I want to. Amen.
And so let me pray. Father, we thank you for your awesome truth, Lord Jesus. And thank you for these great symbols which do speak of a deeper truth. And God, I pray, I don't know whether we've really got it. I don't know whether I've got it, what it really means to share in your sufferings as well as to share in your resurrection. But Lord, as we eat and as we drink, God, I pray that you will cause us to examine our heart and examine our life. You'll cause us to thank you for what you've done and you'll cause us to renew our commitment to be your hands and feet, to be broken, to be poured out, to be sacrificial, to be giving. And that all the time we will fight against that cat mentality that says, I must be God. Feed me, stroke me, give me. God, let us fight against that with all of our might that we would be a passionate people committed to live as the hands and feet of Christ in the power of the Spirit. Amen.